Good evening, everyone. If you've never met before, my name's Danny. I am the campus pastor here at Mosaic at WDW. And um, before we get into the message, I had a quick reminder from an announcement that was made all the way back in April, which is that um, it's beginning next Sunday, moving forward um, at gatherings and events for the Disney Campus Mosaic Church, we are going to be moving to a space of mass optional at that point. Again, we, we did an initial announcement about that all the way back in April, um, but we want to do that one more time before that actually goes into effect starting next Sunday, which is June 6th, and all events moving forward from that point. Um, if you have any questions or comments or concerns about any of that, uh, I would love to chat with you about that. You can either talk to me after the gathering if you're in person, if you're online, or if you'd prefer to just send me an email, uh, my email address is right up there. Danny, see it. This is mosaic.org. And I will get back to you ASAP and we can chat more about that. So um, that's the housekeeping stuff. But I, what I'm really excited about and been so convicted by over the last couple of weeks I've been studying this passage is this passage that we're going to be getting into. We're in the book of Colossians chapter four. Um, now we're in verses five and six. So we're only going to be at two verses today, but they are so rich and so deep. So I'm going to try to move quick through both, but also do due diligence with them. Now, something I love about this community is that this is a space where if you have been following Jesus, whether it's for five minutes or for 50 years, that this is a space where you can connect, that you can be discipled, that you can learn about more and more about what it means to fall in love with Jesus and follow in his way. But I also love that this is a community where if you are a person who you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, that you are welcome into this space to come and to learn, to discover, to ask questions, um, to offer objections, to be frustrated, to be able to wrestle. Like we wanna be a safe place to wrestle. So it's with that in mind um, that before I get into the passage tonight, just for full disclosure of where we're going to be heading tonight in our passage, is we are going to be looking at a message that goes from the author of this passage, a guy named Paul, to this church in Colossae. And specifically, the duration of the letter so far has predominantly been taken up by the, the display of Jesus' beauty and of his supremacy, that Jesus is enough that Jesus is supreme. And then that got contextualized into the life of the church. Like how should that reality of who Jesus is affect the way that we within the family of God interact with one another? But now we are in the final instruction of Paul in this letter. And this time it's about the way that those who call themselves Christians and follow the way of Jesus interact with those outside of the local church. So I am well aware of the fact that this is a community where that, where that dichotomy is going to be represented right here in our midst. And I honestly praise God for that, that this is a safe place for that. But with that in mind, I mention this because I know that for those of you who don't follow Jesus, that this actually what I'm hopeful of is this will be an exciting opportunity for us to kind of pull back the curtain. And so what does the Bible say about any of this? What does the Bible say? Because what you're going to be looking into is kind of like a family conversation where Paul is talking to the church about how they should be talking and doing life with those outside of the church that is supposed to reflect the beauty of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the radical, the radical implications of those realities in the way that they live and the way that they speak. You see, for those of us who follow Jesus, that is the gospel, the good news, that Jesus came, died, and rose again from the grave, 
defeating sin and death and creating a new kingdom paradigm that transforms everything. And it's in that, that everything about us is meant to be transformed. So my hope is that in this passage tonight, that the, that if you are not a follower of Jesus, you'll be able to kind of listen in to a new way that the the scriptures talk about how we are called to interact in the family of God. Now, for me personally, over the past years or so, I have been tempted towards hopelessness in my wonderings about Jesus and the way that he affects the culture that we find ourselves in. I've been wondering if Jesus really does offer a better solution to the cultural issues of our day than what the loudest voices of our culture tend to say. I've been wondering how the church can display radical unity when just about everything in our world has become a point of polarization. I've been wondering how, how grieved God's heart has to be watching his image bearers, humans, treating one another with such bitterness and suspicion. So then I think about how do I interact with those who do not follow the way of Jesus? Those who, if you talk about the scriptures, about the Bible, that they wouldn't see the scriptures as authoritative in their life. Those who might even see biblical ethics is almost like unethical ethics and wonder how can I, in my everyday life, possibly bridge the gap to build genuine, authentic friendships with those who don't think believe, or live like I do. Now, as a community, we uniquely exist to make disciples of Jesus in the context of Walt Disney World, cast members, so that for however long we have individuals within our community, that hopefully you have been pointed towards Jesus and towards his way of doing life, and that your heart, your life has been transformed in light of biblical community. And that for however long that you are here, that whenever it's time for you to go, you would be sent out on mission, both locally or globally, to go and take the gospel forward wherever you would go. In fact, as a church, our mission is simply stated to demonstrate our passion for God and his passion for people. But how do we do that? Especially in light of our highly charged and polarized culture. And do you find yourself confused and discouraged about how you can build relationships with those who might think, believe, or live differently than you. Now, the culture that Paul is writing into was actually more tricky, more difficult, more polarized than the one that we live in today. I'll just cover a few things that we've covered before, just for context. In Colossae, Christians had very little political power or capital. They were not the predominant culture of their day. They were, in fact, seen by the culture as severe outsiders. See, Christians carried around a lot of falsities that were attributed to them. One of the, what I think is the funniest ones, is that they were, they were given the misnomer label of atheists in their culture. So if you talked about Christians, they were called atheists. The reason for that is because in the Roman world, they worshipped a pantheon of gods, all these different gods with physical markers or idols that they would worship and celebrate. But then you have the Christians who are talking about this god who you can't see, and it's only one of them. And that was like, I don't even know what to do with that whole monotheism thing. So they're like, oh, you're just an atheist, I guess. Like, that's all they could really label them as. They were seen as unpatriotic because they refused to offer nationalistic worship to their emperor Nero. 
there was also great suspicion over the newness of Christianity. Think about it, this is kind of weird, right? Because in our culture, what is new is trusted. And if something is old, it's kind of seen with some skepticism, like any version of expertise that is kind of authoritative, that's kind of like suspect. But in their culture, if something is new, then it's suspect. It, it, it's probably just a fad. If something is ancient, if it's an ancient belief system, well, then it probably has some authority to it. And Christianity at this point is all of about 15 years old since, you know, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. So what should this church do? Should they wait until their culture warmed up to their beliefs? Should they hunker down? Should they go out into the desert and start some new Jesus community far away from everyone else where everything will be easy and hunky-dory for them? Well, Paul's encouragement was simple. This is going to sound like something we've talked, we talked about a decent amount here. But it's to walk as a gospel presence and to talk as a gospel voice. I'll say that again. To walk as a gospel presence and to talk as a gospel voice. Now, we're in, again, we're in Colossians chapter 4. We're in verses 5 and 6 tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and read the entire passage, and then we'll break it down bit by bit. So, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So let's break it down bit by bit. So he starts off by saying, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, we've talked about this before, too, that the concept of when we are called to walk in a certain manner, that was language of following after the way of a rabbi, that you would walk and follow in that path or that philosophy, that way of life. So he's saying to walk in wisdom, not to be haphazard, but to be incredibly intentional. Not to just figure things out on your own terms based on your own wisdom in your own moment, but instead to be diligent and wise in going to an authority above your own. Not to go, well, this is what everyone else is doing and it seems to be working out fine for them. So I know it's a little bit weird, but I'm just going to go ahead and go for it. Three of the ways that this would have played out in their culture was with idol worship, with alcohol, and with sex. So what that would look like is they would be tempted to worship these other gods. Like, I'm going to definitely keep worshiping Jesus for sure. But like, isn't that big of a deal if I go and worship these other gods in the pantheon as well? Probably not, right? It'd make make it my life easier. Or there was a temptation to abuse alcohol, or they were going on sexual escapades. So to reach the people, should they just go, you know, if that's what it takes to be with the people, then I'm just going to go for it. That's what Paul's walking into. And he says, no, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. In other words, be intentional, be active in your decision-making, be prayerful, make decisions within the context of biblical community and submit your life to the authority of scripture. This is what the scriptures talk about, the way of wisdom. Then when we are realizing that I'm not always going to have it all figured out on my own. Now, there are a number of you who I've had conversations over the years who are so intentional in walking in wisdom when it comes to your workplace at Walt Disney World. You are working with individuals who think, believe, and do life differently than you. And I've seen so many of you thoughtfully reach out to one another, finding out, like, I don't know. This seems like a gray area. I don't know what I should do in this situation. 
So you don't just go, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Instead, you spend time trying to walk in wisdom with one another, trying to figure out what does it look like? to What should I be doing in this? How can I be a faithful witness to Jesus by loving people right in front of me while also being intentional in how and in what I participate in? Now, it can be difficult for any of us to discern what it means to walk in wisdom. But it definitely means to be intentional. It definitely means to be prayerful, to talk over situations with your discipleship group, with a wise friend, somebody you know in your space, in your, in your space that is intentional. You, like you, see, you have the friend who's always so intentional in their decision-making. That's a wise person to go and talk to so that you would be able to engage with your coworkers, your friends, your family in a way that is both wise and loving. So walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. I love this phrase. Okay, so check this out. The verb that is used in Greek here literally could mean buying up as if a great bargain. Now, here's what I mean by that. And this is, um, it reminded me back in the day, you remember that day, like, pre-COVID, there was this thing called Black Friday and it was like a madhouse. Okay. Now it's like prime day. I get it. That's next month. It's not as much fun because it's not nearly as chaotic. Um, it's just servers crashing, but on Black Friday, right? Like think about Black Friday. Y'all have been Black Friday shopping a time or two, I'm assuming. Okay. So like think about Black Friday. You do not go into Black Friday haphazardly. You don't go, you know, let's just see how this goes. I'm just going to the store. We'll see what deals I can get today. No, like that would be foolish, right? Don't, don't, walk, don't walk in that manner towards Black Friday. Instead, what do you need to do with Black Friday? You, I, I, I remember being a kid and there was like the, uh, the advertisements in the Sunday paper that, that came like the week before. And like, it was like that, th- you guys, yeah, we're all tracking. Okay, we're, we're cool. I'm still relevant in this. Okay, um, <laughs> But like, and Best Buy always had the best, by the way, uh, and Toys R Us, of course. Um, but there was that, so you would go through all the advertisements and you would pick out all of the best things, right? And then you go super early to whatever your first store is because you prioritize your list of stores because you know what you need to get. And then there's like, that'd be nice to get, you know, like the, the Best Buy, like $5 DVDs or whatever, right? So you have this list because you prioritize that you were trying to make the best use of your time. You are buying it up as if it were a bargain. So you want to be diligent and intentional. And this is the way that we are called to live life. As if it's Black Friday. And it's even better than Black Friday. So you chart your course and you go at it. And this is what it means to make the best use of time. Specifically, this is how Paul is describing what the Colossians should do in their engagement with those who do not follow Jesus. To be intentional, to capture every moment with them. To be diligent. Now, here's what I don't want you to walk away with this going. Oh, I need to be perfect. Oh, this is supposed to be high pressure, high stakes. Got it. We don't want to be in the space of believing that I have to be perfect all the time around everyone. Otherwise, I'm going to fail Jesus and everyone I know is going to be lost forever. Like, no, God's sovereign. He's got this story. But yet we are called to participate in his story with him. It's the coolest thing that he could invite us in on that. But we have been invited in with him. So we are called to make the best use of our time so that we are not missing out on the epic stories that Jesus wants to call us into. So we are called to make the best use of the time. 
But I would imagine that that probably for most of us is not where our danger zone is. Probably for most of us, our danger zone is in the not being intentional at all camp. Where we, are, um, where we are not very intentional. We are not at great risk of being intentional with our neighbors, our families, our roommates, fellow cast members, or friends. Now, here's what this does for sure does not mean as well. It does not mean to treat those who do not know and follow Jesus like they're a project. People aren't projects. That's not the point. Like you should care about a person, but only if you believe that there's like a chance that they're going to pray a prayer. And, and as soon as you like notice, you know, they're, they're, their life's really messed up and it's really hard and they don't seem like they're really moving anywhere near Jesus. So I'm just going to go ahead and move on. No, people aren't projects. People are worth love and intentionality that we would make the best use of the time, that we would walk in wisdom with them. See, when it comes to people of any kind, those within the family of God and those outside of it, we are called to love people because they're people. Love people because they're image bearers. Listen to them intensely and intently because they are bearers of the image of God, whether they know it yet or not. We can affirm them in their vulnerability and actually be vulnerable with them as well because that's just a part of friendship if it's a good one, right? Caring about them because Jesus cares about them. So our interactions with those outside the family of God should be intentional and wise in that we display the gospel through our actions, This is what it means to be a gospel presence. We showcase that our identity is found as citizens of the kingdom of God. That we are God's kids, sons and daughters, holy and beloved, set apart, uniquely loved, protected and transformed. This is our truest and new identity. And if we live in that, if we realize that, then Everything changes in light of that. The way we interact with the world around us. The problem is if you're anything like me, what you are probably tempted to is to so often forget your truest identity. So we settle for less and our interactions end up being very unintentional. So our lives, the way we walk should be as a gospel presence, but our words are meant to match, which is where Paul gets at in verse six. Here's what he says. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, there are so many good and helpful resources in the world. I I love a good resource. Um, There's so many different approaches and trainings, um, uh, uh, ways in which you can share the gospel story with people, different apologetics techniques in which you can articulate defenses of the faith, um, all these different arguments, all all that stuff. And much of it is very good and can be very helpful. So I don't want to discard that at all. But that is not what Paul's focus is in this passage. See, he isn't focused here on the content of the message, but the manner in which we communicate the message. So let me back up just a little bit. When I... um, When I was younger, I often said this line that I now uh, reject, and I'll explain why. But I used to say this phrase, maybe you've heard it before, but it's preach the gospel often, use words only when necessary. And I used to say that all the time because I was so sick of seeing Christians who would talk a lot, but not follow it up with their actions. 
Now, to be honest, though, at the same time, I was also a hypocrite and I just didn't want to think about that part either. But that's and that's a very valid thing for sure. But you can't preach the gospel without words. To people who can't just watch your life and they're going to be like, oh, death of Jesus, huh? Resurrection of Jesus, huh? Like that's not exactly the way it goes. Our words and our actions are supposed to be intimately tied though. And that's what we so often forget. We can fall onto one side or the other, but what we are called to do is live in this reality of both, that they're supposed to sustain one another. The words we choose really do, does matter. And I would imagine that none of us want to be that hopefully well-meaning Christian that ends up coming across as if he's beating everyone over the head with a Bible, right? Like none of us want to be that person. But what can so easily happen for, for so many of us, me included, is that we can go, okay, I don't want to be that one. So I'm just not going to say anything. <laughs> or like, like if they ask me like 10 times, I'll tell them why, you know, but we're not, we don't want to be super open about it. But the reality is we are called to be a gospel voice as well. But look how Paul says our words are supposed to be. This is the problem, right? That he says, let your words always be gracious. Let your words always be gracious. The problem is so often the words aren't so gracious. So it's not necessarily the content. It's the manner in which the content is delivered. Gracious words are what we're called to, but gracious words are tricky. And here's why. Because gracious words begin in the heart. If it wasn't for that, they'd be so easy. (laughs) But gracious words begin in the heart. So what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves as we are engaging in conversations with everyone, both believers and non-believers, am I speaking what I'm speaking right now out of a heart that is found in Christ or the heart of self-righteousness? Wouldn't that be an interesting metric in which we are analyzing our conversational habits, right? Because so easily it can be, I want to show how smart I am, but we don't, we, we cover that up and we justify that 10 times over. But here's the point. Nobody has ever been won to Christ because they lost the argument. Do you hear that? Nobody's ever been won to Christ because they lost the argument. You're not going to shame someone to Jesus. Probably not working too well. And because proving someone wrong is not the point or the goal. The gospel convicts already. The gospel already reveals that truth, that we need a savior. But what we need to be pointing people to is not how broken we are exclusively, but how loved we are by God. That in him, through Christ, we have been rescued from our rebellion, from being enemies of God and into the covenant family of God. And that changes everything. So our words matter. Proving someone wrong is not meant to be the point or the goal. See, our motivation, our intention, our word selection, our delivery all need to flow out of a heart of love and graciousness to the other person. I'm very well aware that in in a room of any size, there is going to be a diversity, a beautiful diversity of personality uh, types and methodologies and all kinds of stuff that make the uniqueness of who you are. But speaking graciously is not optional. You get that? Speaking graciously is not optional. Like, well, I'm just a little rough around the edges, you know? No, (laughs) that's an excuse. Speak with graciousness. 
How often, though, let your speech always be gracious. Oh, man, he really boxed me in on that one, right? Let your speech always be gracious. But what about, not then, that's it's a part of the always. Counts, all of them count. Always be gracious. And this doesn't just mean the way that we now verbally speak. Dare I say it influences the way that we post things on social media, on TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, what you're retweeting, what you're commenting on on somebody else's comment that you really, really disagree with. They're just knuckleheads, you know? So you're like, <laughs> like that? Are you typing out of a heart of graciousness? Let your words always be gracious. Let your retweets always be gracious. Let the way you talk to your family member or your friends always be gracious. Now, if this is convicting for you, I've been sitting with this passage for a few weeks now. Guys, it's been wrecking shot for me and I'm still not living it out well. But God is just revealing so much about my heart in this. What does it mean to have the heart of Christ? To be gentle and lowly. Man. Also, I don't want you to, tr- I, just so that we don't trick ourselves into the belief that, well, maybe Paul, prob- his culture was probably so easy. Well, Here's a few more facts about Colossae just to really hammer this one home. True, Paul wasn't able to tweet for sure, but they did have a culture that worshiped a tyrant emperor, a government that ruled by fear, and a culture that was suspicious of anything different, putting Christians on the outside of all of it, giving them plenty of reason to have a lot of ungracious thoughts, actions, and attitudes as their fellow believers were being carted off to their execution and imprisonment, right? Like ungracious talk, probably pretty easy to come by in that context, not too different than ours, but we have this opportunity to speak with graciousness. Because you see, it is possible to have a conversation with somebody who you disagree with while being gracious and kind. I promise it's possible. It's a lot harder for sure, but it is possible. And you know what's cool about it? It reflects the heart of Jesus. Let's keep going. He says the next thing, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, seasoned with salt. This is a common saying in the ancient world. Uh, Salt had two major components to it. You've probably heard this before, Um, but salt had the the preserving element to it so that you could preserve meat and other things for an extended period of time without the beauty of refrigeration, right? It also though has the had even back then the same effect that it has on our meals today. We don't usually preserve our meat with salt, right? I would imagine not many of us do, um, but we still like using salt because it's flavorful. It adds con- um, a little bit more color to your dish. It makes it more enjoyable. And Paul's saying that with our words, they should do the same. Our words should do the same. They should be winsome words. They should be creative, colorful, and life-preserving. They should be seasoned with salt. I'll also go ahead and also state, he's saying seasoned with salt, not caked with salt. In other words, don't show off. You don't have to show off how creative you are, but season it with salt. Make it experiential. Make it incredible. We'll talk in a moment about the way that Jesus did this, but it also means not trying to bring all the attention onto yourself. Instead, season your words with salt. And then finally, where we're going to end at tonight is so that you may know how you ought to answer 
each person. If you feel the pressure by this verse to have all the answers to all the questions, like all of a sudden now you need to go get a book on to understand everything about the Bible, everything about Jesus, everything about culture, everything about politics, everything about everything in the world. And then I'm going to be able to handle these kind of conversations so that they can be, um, so that they can be gracious, seasoned with salt, ready to be able to answer everyone's questions. But, and the truth is I want to encourage all of us, never stop learning. Always have the heart of a student. Always be desiring to discover more in the scriptures. Always desire to discover more about Jesus and who he is and what he wants for our lives, for sure. But can I be bold enough to suggest that in our culture of everyone faking expertise, that a solid answer can oftentimes be, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But would you want to journey with me and go and find out? <laughs> That's, that doesn't come, that, like, how many times has somebody actually ever said that to you? How many times have you ever said that to somebody? How many times have you ever faked an answer to a question that somebody asked you when you actually didn't know the real answer, but you just were like, hopefully it just kind of goes with it? I don't know. See, what we are called to do is alter the manner in which we speak, not just the content. And see, when we do that, when we, when we are willing to say, I don't know, but I would love to go explore with you. What that says is that you are a person who is being marked by the spirit of Christ, which is humble, which is humble. Now, here's the thing about humility. Humility never goes out of style, primarily because it's never, ever been in style in the history of humanity. Pride is always in fashion. But there is one culture in which humility is always in style, and that's in the kingdom of God. And see, we are called to bring that kingdom into our world today by demonstrating the love and the spirit of Christ today in our world with the people in our sphere right now. So we are called to speak out of that kind of humility. And you know what that makes, what's so cool about that is it does what this verse, it allows us the opportunity to do what this verse is talking about, which is to communicate in a personalized manner. Let's look at the verse again. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is not about the fact that you have a standard rote answer for every question, that you'd be able to recite the right resource for every question that's asked. But instead, you would be listening well to the other person to know how the Spirit of God might be leading you in this conversation right now. Utilizing for sure the resources and the ways you've communicated in the past, for sure, but doing it uniquely to the person right in front of you right now. And this leads me to this part. If you ever dream about being countercultural, like I do, try to be understanding of others and their views before trying to be understood yourself. Seek to understand before being understood. Because you see, as we engage with others, we're able to communicate personally and specifically with each person. And Paul's desire would be that we could do exactly that, that we'd be able to answer each person, each person uniquely. I would use these three as the metrics that he's calling for, that we would be speaking graciously, winsomely, and personally. Now, would you say that those are the, that those are the three guidelines that mark your conversations at work in the break room? Now, if we do want to see 
the perfect demonstration of this, of what it means to walk as a gospel presence and to talk as a gospel voice. I would encourage you, don't look to one another to, to have it all figured out because none of us do. We're all gonna get this imperfectly. But there is one who did. See, Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of what it means to be a gospel presence. And he also offers the best vantage point of what it looks like to live out as a gospel voice. Now, there's one other place in scripture that I wanted to point you to and finish up on tonight. And it's in John chapter four. And this is a story when Jesus meets a woman at the well in the land of Samaria. Now, Jesus intentionally went out of his way to be in this place to meet this woman on this day. He's there in the hottest part of the day where nobody would dare go get water if they were in good standing in their, in their culture, in their community. But he goes there at that point and sends his followers off to go get food. And in verse seven, it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. By the way, before I get into this, what I want you to do is look for the way that Jesus was walking in a manner of wisdom and watch the way he was speaking with graciousness, seasoned with salt, giving an answer to her questions. So like, look for the way that, she was, that he is being a gospel presence and a gospel voice in this passage. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She doesn't know what he's talking about, but she's in. She's like, all right. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you did not have is not, you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Like she is flabbergasted in what he knows. So he must be connected to God somehow to know this knowledge about her life. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say as a Jew that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such a person, person to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. The one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. His followers soon come back. And they're like, what are you doing talking to the Samaritan woman? Like this is breaking all the rules. 
But she's already going on her way, saying in verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In this passage, it is demonstrating what it means to be both a gospel presence and a gospel voice. See, Jesus was intentional in his wisdom and in his interaction with this woman. He was making the best use of his time, making sure that he was in this spot at this moment with this woman. He was revealing the gospel through his mere presence. But he was also speaking the truth over her by bringing out some really practical things like the fact that he was asking for water to use that as a physical demonstration, but also by being very blunt and saying, that's right, you don't have a husband, calling out the way that her life has been filled with brokenness. But even in that, you can just hear his graciousness. You can just see that it has been seasoned with salt. Notice how he presents the gospel to her in a way that is unique to her and into the situation that she's at. They're at the well of Jacob. And he is using that as a metaphor for who he is. Jesus, now let's be real. Jesus obviously benefited by the fact of, you know, the fact that he's God and the fact that he knew all these things about her before talking. More often than not, you are not going to be given a hidden insight into a person's life before an interaction. Sometimes the spirit of God does really cool things, but not always but you know what we do have the ability to do that's just crazy if we want to understand somebody's cultural context, if we want to understand their life story, if we want to know their hopes and their fears. We have this killer tool. You ready? We can ask questions. <laughs> we can ask questions and actually be curious about somebody and learn from them, hear from them, hear what's going on in their heart, in their life. And then see what the Spirit of God might do to direct you with the right words this day at the right time. That you would point them to Jesus in a way that is gracious, seasoned with salt, being ready to give an answer to each person. We're not Jesus. But we've been equipped by Jesus. And we have the opportunity to speak personally and uniquely to those in our life as well. But it will cost us time and attention. And we like both of those things, right? But as we care for people uniquely and personally, we're able to respond and be able to give an answer flavored with salt like Jesus. Just read the gospels to see great strategy towards what this means, what this looks like. Notice how Jesus spoke through so many different types of communication with parables, stories, sermons, through object lessons. He even used miracles, healings to display the beauty of the kingdom coming to bear on this world right now. And we can do the same. We can engage in the same. We can walk as a gospel presence. We can talk as a gospel voice. Now, if you're here tonight and you are a follower of Jesus, you might be, you have the option to dismiss these challenging words that the Spirit has put before us tonight. And go along the rest of your week, business as usual, for sure. We always have that option. Or we can receive these words. We can allow them to challenge our actions and our words so that we would be better equipped to display the hope and the beauty of the gospel to a word that's in desperate need of it. But remember this, if, if it were easy, you'd probably already be doing all this by now, right? You cannot live or speak like Jesus without drawing and abiding with Jesus. You can't fake this. You can't muster up enough strength, but it is only as we abide in Christ with him that we are able to bear much fruit because apart from him, we can do nothing.
So be challenged. But take that challenge to Jesus. Ask him to continue to transform your actions and your words to display the beauty and the truth and the grace of Jesus to the world. To both to those who are followers of him and those who aren't. Now, for any of you who are here who do not follow Jesus, you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian. Can I just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry when this kind of love and care has not been your experience with Christians. When what I'd want you to know and what I'd hope you would believe is that our imperfections as Christians does not reflect the perfection that is Christ. We're not perfect at bearing his image. We're just beggars who found a source of food. We're going to get it wrong a lot. And our prayer is that by the kindness of Jesus in this community and in the church around the globe, you would discover increasingly this type of love and care for you. No agenda, no projects, just love. Now our culture, our world is obviously deeply divided. It is filled with hypocrisy, double talk, slander, gossip from both sides. And we as Christians do not always stand out as any different. But what if we did? What if your friends, your family, your coworkers saw the gospel on display in and through you? If they looked into your life and saw you walking in wisdom as a gospel presence in the world, talking with gracious, flavorful, life-preserving and personalized words as a gospel voice. I'd imagine that we would display the truth of the gospel through our lives, that the way of Jesus is truly good news. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come on up. And right now we're going to close the message time in prayer. And as we are going into this, this space of prayer, here's what I would love for you to consider and to engage in. Asking God to give you the strength and the ability to do this, to live this out, to be a gospel presence, to be a gospel voice. I don't know what your last year looked like. I'm imagining it's not what you expected. But in the midst of it, Christ is moving. He is active. He is making the most of the time and we have the opportunity to partner with him in it. This world is in desperate need for hope. And for those of us who carry the gospel in our lives and in our hearts, we have the opportunity to put that hope on display. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the hope in the gospel. I thank you that in Jesus, we have something far more beautiful, far more important, far more meaningful than anything that we could conjure up on our own. God, I, I confess that in my own life, so often my words are short, unkind. My heart is not filled with graciousness and compassion. I insist on my own way. And Lord, I pray for each of us in here tonight that we would be willing to surrender and to confess what has been going on in our lives, what has been hiding in our hearts that has stopped us from being able to display the gospel in our words and in our actions. What hurts, what frustrations, what unkindnesses, 
What scars are living there? Lord, we pray for healing in that space and that you would meet us in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our brokenness, and that you would reveal to us your kindness in the midst of this moment. Father, I pray that this community be set apart by you to do good work, to love you, and to demonstrate your love across the street at Walt Disney World and around the world. God, you are good, you are kind, you are faithful. You are never giving up on us. So thank you. Lord, I pray that we would live out of gratitude for you tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.